Welcome to Nefarious New York. I'm Allison, and I'm here with Chris, who is filling in for Meredith. How exciting. Thank you for having me, Allison. Okay, so Meredith's going to be out for a few weeks, and then she will be back, hopefully, or I'll kill her. <laughs> um, so I guess we're just going to jump right into the case. Really? The dog's got a snore. I am staring, folks. I am staring at this puppy, a new addition to the McCormick family, on Allison's lap, so you can visualize this, with a towel wrapped around. <laughs> she's cold. She's cold, so. And she's just staring at me with these, picture a five-pound, seven-pound dog, maybe, with these she's big- three pounds. Three pounds, and I think her eyes are one pound. <laughs> uh, but I'm winging this. I'm, I'm going to do it. So we will be serious, because this is a crime, and we'll get started. On the afternoon of December 30th, 1974, Anthony Barbaro left his house with his mother's car. He told his brother Chris that he was going target shooting. Barbaro got to Olean High School at about 2.50 p.m. After leaving his car, he entered the school building through an open side entrance and went up to the third floor where he set off a Coke bottle filled with gasoline and a wick. The date, though, was December 30th, so school is not in session, thank God. It's just winter break. Wow. He tried to open the door to the student council room, but it was locked. Barbaro shot off the lock, entered the student council room, and tied the door shut. So it's now approximately 3.05, so this is like 15 minutes after he went in. There was a 12-man custodial crew doing routine maintenance in the basement of the school at this time. The superintendent was there and some other office staff, and he heard the fire alarm and sent Earl Metcalf to see what the problem was. So Earl went up and he met the third floor custodian who told him to leave because he thought he heard gunshots. But Earl, I guess he didn't listen or he's also probably assuming it's not gunshots, because why would you assume it is? Right, it's so, not your everyday routine. So. Right, so he did end up going up to the student council room. Anthony Barbaro saw Earl through the glass window of the student council room, and he just opened the door and shot and killed him. He then piled up some cardboard boxes in the hallway and started a small fire. I'm not sure why he did that. Numerous reasons. I mean, at the end of the day, who knows, but... Some people feel the fire kills all the evidence. Yeah. Some perpetrators, you know, like in TV, that a fire will kill fingerprints and anything you left behind. I was thinking, too, that he maybe did it to get the fire department to come. Sure. And, like, people to come around the building, and you'll see why. Okay. I think that. Um, so Barbaro then positioned himself in the student council room on the third floor of the school and then just started shooting the people that were showing up outside the windows. So he was shooting out the windows. So he wasn't really there for the people in the building because it wasn't, like I said, it was vacation. So right, it wasn't packed. Sure. So he was more using it just as like a perch, I guess, to start shooting people. Yeah, to show up there while school's out definitely wasn't his attempt to do a school shooting, obviously. Mr. Pancio, who was working on the first floor with other school personnel, smelled the smoke and went upstairs to investigate. He said, I ran up to the third floor. It was full of smoke. I saw a body on the floor and went over and pulled the man up. He was dead, shot in the left side of the chest. 
Mr. Pancio also saw cartridge shells and glass shards from broken light bulbs all over the hallway and figured that the killer might still be in the building. So he went back down to the first floor office and called 911. They arrived within 20 minutes. So the fire department came and police. In the building at the time, in addition to that, custodial staff and Mr. Pancio were the principal, Principal Nickel, Richard Scott, Richard Crott, a secretary and some other women, and clerical staff. There were actually two students there who had come in to just pick up some books they had forgotten. So during all of this craziness, they all were in these two offices on the first floor. Wow. This was so weird to me. After the fact, they found Barbara had a cassette player with a copy of Elton John's Ticking song that was playing during the shooting. And to me, the Elton John I know now, I didn't think he wrote, like, lyrics that would inspire or... I don't yeah, want to... I'll, I'll have to play that now. I'm curious. So, so I did look up the lyrics, and I read them. And besides there being... Inspiring. ...a lot of racist lyrics... Really? ...which I left out, here's some of the lyrics. It says, An extremely quiet child, they call you in your school reports. He's always taken interest in the subjects that he's taught. So what was it that brought the squad car screaming up your drive to notify your parents of the manner in which you died? But blood stained a young hand that never held a gun, and his parents never thought of him as right. their troubled son. Elton John is a little... Yeah, it's a little dark. He was dark. This whole song is dark. If you want to look, I didn't want to read the whole... I never guessed that. I know. I was like, this can't be real. And then I looked up the song, and there's a lot of... Um, Bit of racist stuff in there as well. Well, which... you see his movie now, Elton John, how troubled he was younger. Yeah, Maybe I didn't. some of his words coming out. So the first people shot outside the school were Neil Pilon, who was laying in the street. Also, Carmen Wright was shot while driving by the school. A lot of the firefighters that were among the injured were hurt trying to get their Mr. Pilon's aid. So by 5.20 p.m., this is a long time later. Yeah, I was just thinking. Two and a half, half hours? Hour, 5.20 p.m. Mm -hmm. Local and state police officers were surrounding the school building, and they had brought in two National Guard tanks. Wow. And they came in basically, and I don't know this routine, but to kind of shadow the officers on foot so they could protect absolutely the officers as they went to get to the injured. Yep. Absolutely. Right? Does that make sense? Yep, yeah, perfectly. Sure. Like a barricade, like a mobile barricade. Right. Yeah, Barbaro had fired 31 shots, not making any statements here, but today with the weapons that everyone has access to, there would have been much more. What is it called? Like the AR-15s? Yeah, all the, all the semi-automatics like and the way they stock them. ton in seconds. And this is 1971, so I mean, it's, it's so true. There would have been, yeah, it would have been much more. So over two and a half hours, he fired 31 shots. In today's world... Yeah, in two and a half hours, you could take out a college campus. Yeah. If the emergency responders aren't showing up. It's crazy. Where back then, makes sense. I mean, who knows what he was doing in between, you know, what his mindset was as far as walking around. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't there. But, uh, yeah, 31 shots is nothing in a two-hour span. You could do that in a minute and a half in, again today. Three people were killed in this shooting, and 11 others were wounded. Those killed were... Earl Metcalf, 62, he was killed inside the school building. 
He was shot in the left side of his chest. Columbia Gas Company employee Neil Pallon, 58, was shot while crossing the street outside of the school. Carmen Wright, 25 years old, was shot in the head inside her car while driving by the school. Talk about luck. She was six months pregnant. Both Pallon and Wright were pronounced dead on arrival at Oline General Hospital. And she was in the car with her family because her brother comes up as one of the injured. Horrible. Wow. Yeah, I mean, again, luck of the drawer. What be it? You wake up in the morning just not knowing. I didn't think about it. A routine day and you're just sitting in your car and you get shot. Seven people survived the shooting with gunshot wounds, while four others sustained injuries from flying glass fragments. So eight of the wounded victims were the firefighters who responded to the complaint at the school. Herbert Elmore, 43, he was a fireman. He was shot in the head, but he survives and is in, was in critical condition at the time. Okay. Joseph Snupkowski, 55, was a fireman and shot in the stomach. Wow. Earl White, 23, a fireman, had puncture wounds. Albert Abdo, 37, a fireman with some elbow injuries. William Frohm, 35, a fireman with some superficial puncture wounds. Julius Wright, 12 years old, was the brother of Carmen Wright, and he was a passenger in the car. So he got a minor eye injury when bullet fragments grazed him. Three other firemen suffered wounds from the bullet fragments and were released. They were David Gross, 28, Raymond Limerick, 40, and George Williams, 36. See, I don't get, I don't get bullets, but normal bullets don't fragment, right? They stay um, in one piece. Yeah, unless they hit like a skull. They can usually just a, a main bone, a skull. Like if one went through my arm, not hitting a bone, it would just come out as a bullet. Right, if it's flesh, if not, usually there's a little piece. When like crime scene comes, they'll find little fragments. Tiny really? little specks of, if it hits a skull or, or a nice size bone. Hmm. So before nightfall, two New York State police entered the school and threw tear gas grenades into the student council room where Barbara was found unconscious wearing a defective gas mask. And I do have a picture of that that I'll put up. Barbara was laid onto a stretcher and transported by ambulance to the hospital. He was examined, had no injuries, and then was transferred to the city jail. Figures he had no injuries. Mm -hmm. Police found a 12-gauge shotgun and a 306 rifle with a telescopic sight, along with ammunition for both weapons. The suspect had apparently thrown the weapons out of the window before he was seized. So the perpetrator of the shooting, Anthony Barbaro, was 17. He was born in 1957. He lived in Olean, which is near Buffalo. He lived with his parents and his three younger siblings. He had a sister, Cecile, and brothers, Stephen and Chris. His father was an executive of a successful manufacturing firm, and Anthony worked with his mother at a local fast food restaurant. Barbaro had also shown an interest in engineering and had hoped to become a scientist. Hmm. During the shooting, Barbaro's 10-year-old brother, and a friend were using walkie-talkies, and they heard about the shooting. And uh, the brother was really nervous and was panicking and thought that his brother might be a victim of the shooting. Wow. I guess he knew he was headed over there. Right, wow. And he was uh, worried about his brother. 
So Barbaro had attended Olean High School, where he was an honor student. He was ranked eighth highest academically in his senior class of 292 kids. And he was inducted into the National Honor Society in February of 74. He had also won a Regents scholarship to New York University that December. So he was really smart. Yeah, seems like. The school principal, Principal Nichols, said Barbro joined the rifle team when it was formed three years ago and won a trophy for best markmanship in a countywide match last year. He was ranked number one on the team of 10 students. Those who knew Barbara remembered him as being quiet, and his principal again described him as more of a loner than not. I'm not into that characterization. I wouldn't be comfortable with someone calling my kid a loner. Totally. I don't think... I'm trying to think of any of these mass shootings... Any of them not being characterized as a loner. Right. Anyway, Principal Nichols said that Barbro excelled scholastically and caused no disciplinary problems. I seem like the all-American kid. I mean, academically, he belongs to clubs. Even if it's shooting, it's that's a great club to be involved in. And he's active. Again, smart. I mean, you just don't, you can't figure it out what goes through somebody's mind. Uh, and this is a tough you know, this is a different time where there's no social media. There's no, it's harder to investigate mm-hmm. for both doctors, police, parents. You know, the, it's so much harder to really know what's going through your kid's mind. Police have found no apparent motives as to why Barbaro, uh, we were just talking about, committed his crimes. Mm-hmm. A teammate of Barbaro on the school's rifle team recalls Barbaro having spoken of wanting to hold up the Olean Armory and engage in a police standoff. Barbaro said, how funny it must feel to be a sniper holding off people. Barbaro had just tried out for the bowling team, but did not qualify. Not to joke, but please tell me not making the bowling team was not a motive. I hope not. not. Yeah. uh, Again, though, at that age, it's, it's so for a teenager to not make something, again, who knows if kids are breaking his balls, having fun with him. And, and again, you just don't know what's going through a kid's mind or what's really on the outside right. investigating this, what he was going through. His journal said that he had also thought about driving through town shooting people at random. Ugh. Years later, some that knew him say that a possible motive might be that he was alienated because of his homosexuality. Did not see that confirmed anywhere. Yeah, I didn't find any confirmation of that in my research. Okay. Just that's what someone thought. Ugh. And others said that his home life was dysfunctional and oppressive. I don't know. I mean, again, there's so many more elements that could be involved. Home life. And, you know, it's, nobody's going to come out and say, yeah, uh, he had it tough with mom or dad or, or maybe personal homosexual thoughts or acts. So there's so many things could be involved in this kid's life mm-hmm. that they just bring them to the edge. On December 31st, 1974, Barbara was arraigned on three counts of second-degree murder, six counts of first-degree assault, and five counts of first-degree reckless endangerment. He was being held without bail at the city jail. Following the shooting, police found homemade propane bombs in his bedroom, as well as bomb recipes and a journal that detailed the plans of this shooting. 
In April 1975, Barbaro entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. However, he was found competent to stand trial by two court-appointed psychiatrists. So in New York at the time, the insanity defense was that a person is not criminally responsible for his conduct if at the time of such conduct, as a result of mental disease or defect, he lacks substantial capacity to know or appreciate either the nature and consequences of such conduct or that such conduct was wrong. So at the time of this, it was up to the prosecution to prove that he was sane. But today it's different, and the defense has to prove that he's insane. So that's the major difference now, I guess. Right. Barbara was transferred from the city jail to the county jail. And October 21st, 1975, a grand jury was seated for his trial. On October 27th, his defense attorney presented testimony saying that Barbro had a serious deep-rooted mental illness that should preclude his conviction. Wow. On November 1st, 1975, between 5 and 6 a.m., Barbaro hanged himself with a bed sheet in his cell in the county jail. The county jail coroner ruled his death a suicide. His attorney called him deeply troubled young man. You think... At mm-hmm. his funeral service, the pastor tried to humanize Barbaro. Think of all those years when there were no headlines. When Tony Barbaro, that is, Tony was doing his chores at home, when he was at school working hard, as always, when he was an altar boy serving very faithfully. Right. I mean, I think he's going to have a tough job trying to get sympathy for this kid. Yeah, at the end of the day, exactly. But... Yeah. Let's think about those victims that, yeah, you know, that day, just luck of the draw, showing up at work or being in the wrong place at the wrong time, mm-hmm. regardless of his upbringing or his problems. So Barbaro had written three suicide notes that were found on his bed in his cell. One note was addressed to his family. Another was addressed to a woman that he was corresponding with while in prison. And a third note was addressed to whom it may concern. So in one of the notes, he sort of explained his motives. He said, quote, I regret the pain I caused my family and friends. I regret that day the force took me and the pain, suffering, and destruction that resulted. This was meant to be. This is one of the things I wanted all along. I guess I just wanted to kill the person I hate most, myself. I just didn't have the courage. I wanted to die, but I couldn't do it. So I had to get someone to do it for me. It didn't work out. So I'm guessing he wanted the police to kill him. Right. Police, uh, suicide by police. Mm -hmm. In the third note, he wrote, people are not afraid to die. It's just how they die. I don't fear death, but rather the pain, but no more. I regret the foods I'll never taste, the music I'll never hear, the sights I'll never see, the accomplishments I'll never accomplish. In other words, I regret my life. Some will always ask why. I don't know. No one will. What has been can't be changed. I'm sorry. It ends like it began in the middle of the night. Someone might think it's selfish or cowardly to take one's own life. Maybe so, but it's the only free choice I have. The way I figure, I lose either way. If I'm found not guilty, I won't survive the pain I've caused, my guilt. If I'm convicted, I won't survive the mental and physical punishment of my life in prison. And he ended with, he ended the note with, now my fate is in the hands of the Lord. His will be done. 
I try to remember too that he's 17 and wrote that. That's pretty right for a young man. Pretty deep. It is deep, and you see the mental illness involved, and mm-hmm. I'm sure totally not treated for it, especially in 1971, 74. Uh, you just go off the edge, and you know, being in the gun club, this is something that's every day to him. Knowing these weapons just makes it that much more different, the dangerous. It doesn't matter, you know, if somebody wants to hurt somebody, it's in their mind, they're going to do it some way, somehow, but it's more dangerous. Here's a kid who's basically an expert in firearms. Right. He definitely knows how to use these weapons. That's what makes it that much more scarier. Mm -hmm. That's it. So hopefully Meredith will be back soon. If you guys want to leave some comments, that would be great. You could tell Chris what a good job he did. It's great having uh, me. I had a lot of fun staring at this appetizer to the two big dogs of the house. <laughs> this is definitely the mozzarella sticks to the <laughs> the two big guys outside the podcast yeah, room. I'm a little worried. Like, how traumatic would that be if I came down one morning and oh, this one was in two pieces? Yeah, three pounds. Three pounds to my 115-pound dogs. So I'm new at this. I'm just... Uh, Having a good time here again. First time to be on this great podcast, staring at a three-pound dog in Allison's lap. Yes. Well, you did do us a little Halloween episode, though. That's right. I so enjoyed that. It's not Chris's first time on the show. Um, reviews would be good. And that's it. No one is singing anything out today, because I'm not singing, are you? No. Okay. So we'll just see you guys next time. Stay tuned for bloopers of Allison and Meredith after the music. She has kennel cough, so we're just going to... Be a good topic Friday. <laughs> I don't see it. I don't have time for the movies. Allison, make time. <laughs> Very busy. Okay, uh, yeah, okay, go. Stay tuned for bloopers of Allison and Meredith after the music. Do it one more time. Bloopers. Stay tuned for mute. Do it again. Stay tuned for bloopers. Of bloopers. Bloopers. Not bloopers. Go. Yeah, go. Is that going to be a blooper? Absolutely. Yeah, go. Yeah. Bloopers. Bloopers. Yeah. Bloopers. Stay tuned for bloopers of Allison and